With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the 26th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve your information security and also help you to protect your privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast app is, in addition to the Voice America website website, of course, and also check out my website, Simbus360.com and privacyguidance.com. And I'm now teaching live some online IAPP privacy certification classes. Send me an email if you want more information about this. So my July privacy professor tips message was published on June 28. Did you get yours? Well, if not, sign up for them. They're free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know who is your privacy hero at work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. Now today, my tip of the week relates to the topic of my July tips, which was the growing amount of fake stories being published online, those that claim celebrities have died or that business icons are giving away millions of dollars if you just post a photo on your social media site, which of course they won't, and hundreds of others. Well, now there is digital evidence collectively pointing to Russia and possibly other nation states who are posting made-up stories in tweets from fake personas, and they're using established hashtags, and they're stealing photos from real people to make these false personas. For example, on June 28th, a made-up statement came from a fake persona. The name of the fake persona was Sofia Vargoros, and... The fake persona used another woman's photo that came from a book cover, and the fake story was posted using the walkaway hashtag. Now, that tweet from this fake persona with a made-up story was retweeted over 16,000 times, and it was spread through, well, who knows how many other social media outlets. Researchers reported that Russians saw an opportunity to use a popular hashtag 
to create rancor and used it to spread false statements really widely. The intended goal was to weaponize hashtags and other types of social media outlets and posts that are popular and to use them by spreading these fake stories to kind of divide the population. So be very careful to consider the reality of what people post with any type of hashtag that is being used to promote any type of political views or social views and so on. They will be used to cause chaos however possible, especially during our election cycle. The tactics from the 2016 election will be even more aggressive per some researchers for this uh, area that I've spoken with. And I, and I don't mean 2016, I mean the 2018 cycle. They're, they'll be more aggressive than 2016. You can bet that there are and will be others and more of them coming in the weeks and months ahead. And they're going to be posted for all political parties. So, you know, here's your tip. Do not believe everything you see online, even if the information is using a hashtag that you've seen before or even used it yourself. Make sure to check out the legitimacy of tweets and other types of posts before you repost them. So today is the second of a series of topics that I'm doing on voting and elections security. I spoke with Ed Moyle in my June 26th show about his research into election security. Today, I'm addressing the security of our U.S. voting systems and voter registration and election systems and databases. On July 13th, the U.S. Special Counsel investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election, they actually issued an indictment of 12 Russian intelligence officers for hacking the Democratic National Committee and also the Clinton presidential campaign. The indictment indicated that those Russian officers also targeted state and county offices responsible for administering the 2016 U.S. elections in an effort to do various things like steal voter data and other types of information. Now, much more information has made the news since then about the attempted hacks of the voting systems and the voter registration databases. They were successful in 2016 in hacking into the systems with the Illinois State Board of Elections, and they reported that there was 500,000 records, personal information records, stolen during that time. Now, this hacking also targeted Iowa, and that's where I live. And while there were many attempts that we had reported that were made against our systems and databases here in Iowa, according to our Iowa Secretary of State, Paul Pate, he reported that Iowa's systems weren't compromised. And he said that his office partnered with auditors in all 99 counties to strengthen the cybersecurity efforts and provide such things as cybersecurity training. And also, he was working with them at the county level to require two-step or two-factor authentication to access voter registration databases. Now, on July 13th, 
California's Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, announced that he was opening a cybersecurity office specifically to help protect voter registration information and election systems from the threat of hackers. And, you know, these are just two states uh, that I mentioned, but several actions are occurring throughout the U.S. But is what they are doing enough? And what are the methods used to attack our voting systems and any social engineering methods that are being used for the hackers to try to get access to the systems and the databases. What risks truly do exist within all of these databases and systems and uh, computing devices? And in what ways could successful compromise of our systems actually occur um, and also, is there anything that is being done through this propaganda and fake personas, like I mentioned earlier, that, that might be related? Well, guess what? I have the perfect person to discuss this with today. Today, my guest is Maurice Turner, Senior Technologist at the Center for Democracy and Technology, where he focuses on the Election Security and Privacy Project identifying and updating election cybersecurity practices and infrastructure. Now, Maurice most recently served as a Tech Congress Congressional Innovation Fellow assigned to the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. And there he shaped policy and oversaw preparation of memos, briefings, and hearings on federal IT systems and cybersecurity. Maurice has also played an active role in local elections in California and Virginia, holding progressively responsible positions from clerk to lead inspector overseeing multiple precincts. Maurice holds an MA in public administration from USC and a certificate in cybersecurity strategy from Georgetown University. Maurice also regularly publishes articles and insights at the cdt.org backslash blog and on Twitter using at type MRT. Maurice, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it, it certainly is a time, timely topic. And I think what I'd like to start with is just, you know, getting a feel for some of the um, the environment within the different states and the the state of security and privacy. Now, I know earlier this year there was a report that was released by the Center for American Progress that reported on security in all 50 states. And what I thought was really interesting were some of their uh, findings, such as 14 states use paperless voting machines, at least in some of their districts, but five states rely completely on paperless voting systems. And then there were 33 states who didn't really have very um, satisfactory, I guess we'll call them unsatisfactory, uh, audit procedures following elections to ensure that everything went so far. Um, And also absentee voters and the way the absentee ballots were um, processed. There were problems there. 
So, you know, all those, the states, even those with good security practices were found to have significant vulnerabilities. Are you surprised at these overall findings or do you find that they are aligning with what you and the CDT have found through your own research? You know, I'm not surprised at all uh, by the findings. Uh, I just want to say firstly that 50-state research is mm-hmm. an incredible challenge. It's very time-consuming, and it's difficult to get consistency in the responses. And so looking at the grades that the Center for American Progress was able to establish when evaluating all of these states, uh, it just shows that there is such inconsistency across the country when it comes to securing our election systems. Um, mm-hmm. There's an inconsistency in the capabilities and the resources that the states have for protecting their elections, uh, which also means that there's going to be inconsistency in how that security is actually put in place, monitored, and improved on a regular basis. You know what a lot of folks tell me is they're shocked <laughs> that there's not like a basic level of minimum security that is federally required throughout all of the United States. But, you know, is there or is that something that is a, a, a huge vulnerability within, our, within the U.S.? Elections are a classic example of federalism. Uh, mm-hmm. These states are in charge of their own elections and the federal government is there willing to assist. So when you're talking about the uh, Election Assistance Commission, uh, they provide testing standards. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, they provide voluntary guidelines. And even the Department of Homeland Security provides voluntary assistance programs. Um, But Mm -hmm. again, the key is that all these are voluntary. These are programs that are in place at the federal level that the states have the sole discretion of deciding whether or not they will take advantage of those federal resources. So it it sounds like it's probably unlikely that uh, due to the federalism uh, concept and and how we've always followed that, it's probably unlikely that we'll ever have like a, a regulation that would be established that would require such uh, consistency throughout the states? I mean, that's just a, for on your own opinion. I don't know if that's something that, that you've thought about. In my opinion, it seems unlikely. Uh, there are certainly mm-hmm. benefits and also some concerns about uh, having some standards in place that are mandatory. Uh, but there are some states, approximately 38 states, including the District of Columbia, do use some aspect of the NIST voluntary security guidelines. Uh, Mm. But again, there are other states that simply refer to the federal standards or may not even have any of the federal testing or certification requirements mandated in their state at all. So as I said before, it it really depends um, on the individual states and their election laws. And then even further down, it depends on the individual jurisdictions uh, and their election laws and simply how they are able to function whether they be large or small, in implementing uh, elections. Well, and you mentioned then uh, different types of certifications at the state level. So can you let us know what types of voting and elections system technical security certifications are currently being used? For the most part, uh, many of the states are looking to those voluntary 
security guidelines put out by NIST. So mm-hmm. they're examining the testing and certification um, that it's done at the federal level um, by labs, and they're making a determination of which vendors' systems they would like to use in their states. And then on top of that, they're layering on their own testing and certification programs. Uh, so again, it really just it depends, uh, which is unfortunate because that's going to be a, an answer that we hear a lot when we're talking about election security. Uh, mm-hmm. There's such a broad spectrum of resources and funding and simply education level uh, when it comes to all parts of those that are involved within the election process. So are those uh, systems that are getting certified, are they, and, and when we're talking about certified, we're talking about, or I'm referencing the technical certification of the actual voting systems themselves, are they using uh, such standards as NIST that they are certifying to? They're not using NIST per se. Um, mm-hmm. These voluntary guidelines that were developed by NIST were last updated in 2005. Now, oh. more recently, NIST has developed uh, the cybersecurity framework, and that mm-hmm. is looked to worldwide when it comes to just cybersecurity practices that any organization can take and apply to their own needs. Interesting. And, oh, go ahead. And those uh, voluntary voting, voting system guidelines are in the process of being updated. But as I said before, the last time they were updated was 2005. And here we are in 2018. Yeah. And we still haven't updated those guidelines yet. Yeah. And, and as you said, when you said 2005, I immediately started thinking about my flip phone that I used in 2005. And also, I think maybe uh, Windows XP system. So things have evolved so much since then. We, we didn't even have iPhones back then. So uh, I think it's a good time for a change. And we know that the hacking activities are certainly keeping up with technology. Um, what are some of the hacking activities that you found are occurring against all the different types of voting systems? Well, funny you mention it uh, when you said Windows XP. Mm -hmm. Vulnerabilities that exist in old operating systems are really a goldmine for anyone who has any malicious intent on breaking in either to Uh, the registration databases or the voting machines themselves. Uh, Sometimes those general purpose operating systems uh, are updated. Uh, In some cases, they're so old um, that they don't even receive software patches so that they can be updated. Uh, So anyone who has access, whether it's physical access to the machines or even remote access uh, using wireless connectivity or other remote access software, uh, you know, can exploit these vulnerabilities and get in and not only see the information that is on the machines, whether it be voter records or the ballots themselves, but may also have the opportunity to change those voter records or the votes that were cast. Wow. Now that's really scary because we know that so many local and state governments, I mean, their funding that they have, Oftentimes, the last thing they spend money on are the systems, right? If it, I know a lot of my clients, uh, you know, not just in government, and but in general, are like, if if a system's working, then we're not going to invest in updating it. And I I know some government agencies probably 
think that way too, but it's so scary, like you said, if they're using XP, uh, maybe even Windows 95, who knows, um, and we know those systems are sitting there vulnerable and haven't been patched for years and years to think what could possibly be, you know, attacking them. <laughs> the, the hackers would love to find those, I think, if they did any drive-by uh, types of, of war driving to find those types of open connecting points through Wi-Fi. Well, and, and we saw firsthand last year at the at the DEF CON voting machine hacking village where you had actual researchers there on site with machines that were either recently in use or even currently in use get hacked in a matter of minutes. I don't think that there was a voting machine that was on site that survived the entire four-day conference uh, without having vulnerabilities exposed. And so what makes that scary is that um, these machines are used infrequently. Uh, and so mm-hmm. they're not seeing the attention that they probably deserve when it comes to making sure that they are up to date and that they've had their security patches applied and that that security is tested. Well, and, it, you know, as we are discussing this, it, it kind of causes me concern, too, because back in my early career, I was an IT auditor and a systems engineer. But as an IT auditor, you know, those those audit plans used are often general. And if you're going out and currently doing audits on systems to see how secure they are, I wonder if those audits are actually taking into account the types of systems, the operating systems, and the uh, environments within which those operating systems are running. I mean, have you have you been familiar with or seen any of these audit plans that the different states say they're doing to check their own systems to see if they're secure? I'm not familiar with the audit plans, but I am familiar with the Department of Homeland Security um, pushing forward a plan where they would actually partner with, uh, with vendors to provide security assessments mm-hmm. to um, the election, manu- election systems manufacturers. So they would actually um, have a third party review uh, the devices they're putting together and get a list of all the vulnerabilities. Now, what I think is a critical next step is to make sure that those uh, assessments are actually made available, uh, even if it's in some sort of a classified way to the state and local officials who are actually buying this equipment. I think it's fair that those officials have access to what in essence would be a fair report on just how secure those election machines are compared to what the vendors say. Because obviously Mm -hmm. the the vendors are going to say that their machines are as secure as they can make them. Um, But it's important for election officials um, and for those making the purchases to know and make an apples-to-apples comparison between different machines to see which vendor has actually made a more secure product so they can make a better buying decision. Oh, that's a, a great point, especially about the fact that, of course, if somebody has created something and they've done their own test to determine it's secure, how do we know that they didn't miss something during that testing that some third party might be able to identify through you know, vulnerability assessments, through pen testing, and so on? So I think that's that should be an absolute must, I would think, to have those voting systems Uh, go through those types of rigorous third-party assessments before you're ever using them for a a real election. 
We have um, it in under other industries. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Americans are used to being educated consumers. Can you imagine going and buying a car and you ask the dealer, you know, well, how safe is this vehicle? How does it perform in a crash? And the dealer tells you it's the safest car ever, but you know that there is an independent government agency that does crash testing mm-hmm. and then provides a rating. So the consumers can look across the board to see how one rating uh, compares to another rating. We don't have that for election systems. Yeah, yeah, that seems like that would be something very important so that we could make sure that all the um, all the wide range of comprehensive testing is being done. Um, so when we're looking at all these vulnerabilities in the testing, um, we have about a, two minutes before our break, but I'm wondering if you can tell us before we go maybe some of the attacks where they're coming from. I know we've talked about from Russia, but there's a lot of other countries out there that want to attack us as well, right? Well, we saw clearly in the Mueller indictment, as well as in previous intelligence reports, that Russia was definitely responsible for the 2016 um, election interference. But Mm -hmm. we've also heard from DHS officials, and rightly so, that Attacks can come from anywhere, foreign or domestic. It's not just going to be the nation state actors. Um, It it can be other criminal enterprises. It can even just be a local prankster who happens upon a system they find a vulnerability in, and they have no idea that it's an election system. Oh, well, that's a good point. Especially, I worry... um that some of those who volunteer, sometimes they might not always have the best intentions. And maybe we can start off there when we come back from our break. But, you know, the election process has so many volunteers involved that I see that as kind of a weak point as well. Um, So thanks, Maurice. Let's uh, now take time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I appreciate so much. We're speaking today about voting and election security with Maurice Turner, Senior Technologist at the Center for Democracy and Technology. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHarrell at RebeccaHarrell.com, and through my website, Symbus360.com, PrivacyGuidance.com. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, 
breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Simbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Simbus system. Visit Simbus360.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We're speaking today about voting and election security with Maurice Turner, Senior Technologist at the Center for Democracy and Technology. So let's continue our conversation. Uh, before we went to our break, while we were talking about the fact that while, you know, we know for sure it's been affirmed that uh, we did have hacking and other types of attempts, attempts to influence our elections in 2016 from Russia, but there are a lot of other folks who are local, who are national, who are from other countries, who are interested in disrupting our elections as well. So, Maurice, um, what kind of tools are you seeing being used to do these different types of attacks? Well, most likely we're going to be seeing uh, key loggers and remote access tools used um, in the hacker toolkit to gain access. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was explained somewhat in the Mueller indictment uh, where you can have a phishing email come into an election official or someone else who works in the office, and that person is tricked uh, into mm-hmm. providing their credentials using like a fake login screen or opening up an email attachment. Um, from there, the keylogger would be installed, and that's an important tool in the toolkit um, because it allows the, the person on the other end to capture every single keystroke. So anytime... Um, not only any username or password is input, but also uh, it gives some insight into any sort of files or folders that the person is working on or, or other notes that the person might have um, when they're typing in. Uh, something else that would be used, as I mentioned before, be a remote access tool. Mm-hmm. And that's something that uh, lets the malicious actor control the computer as if they were sitting right in front of it. And mm-hmm. sometimes that computer can be controlled without anyone else even knowing about it. It can happen in the background. Uh, and that was a big concern that we saw in the ESNS voting equipment um, that was provided to customers between the year 2000 and 2006. Now, originally, ESNS said that the, the remote access uh, software was not installed uh, on those voting machines, but it turned out that they actually confirmed. Uh, to Cinder Wyden, to a response to his letter, that there was, in fact, remote software installed on the election machines. Uh, Oh, wow. The concern there is that this particular software, uh, PC Anywhere, 
had actually had its source code stolen um, during that same time frame. So not only was the software installed on ESNS's machines, but the software itself had its source code out in the public, had it available so that if anyone was interested, they could have reviewed the source code, looked for vulnerabilities. And if they found those vulnerabilities, they would be able to target those election machines, those voting machines, because the software was installed on the machines themselves. Wow. Well, how many of those machines, do you know how many of those ESS machines from that time period might still be being used out there? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure of that exact number. Uh, ESNS claims that uh, as of 2007, they stopped mm-hmm. having that software installed on their machines. Um, but as recently as 2006, up to 60% of the ballots cast in the U.S., were actually tabulated using ESNS software. Uh, so even though it's a small chance that that could have happened to a small number of voters, that represents a huge risk to know that that mm-hmm. many people uh, could potentially have their vote change and there may not have been any sort of evidence of that change happening unless those states had strong audit requirements. And several states don't. Yes. Oh, that worries me so much because like when uh, at the beginning of the show and I was talking about some of the states from the other report talking about having no paper backup, uh, no paper record of the votes that you could audit against and, and no digital logs being taken, it just it just really worries me just because I've been, you know, in this field my entire career, it's like there's so much that that could be done that nobody would ever catch if they didn't have those in place. Um, and the wireless access, that worries me too because uh, something that I've done a lot throughout my career is, is wireless uh, access point discovery through oftentimes war driving. And I can tell you back in, it was several... Well, a few elections ago, I drove past some of the election spots uh, when voting was going on, and I found open wireless access points. Now, did those go into the election systems themselves? Possibly. It's uh, I'm not going to say, and they've gotten it fixed since then, but still, it worries me that that there's so many holes and, and uh, human vulnerability is there to be exploited through, like you said, these phishing attempts. Wireless is a big challenge uh, because the convenience is so easy to realize. Uh, mm-hmm. Imagine having a warehouse full of election machines that you're responsible for and you need to update the software. Would you rather walk down the aisle and turn on and, and plug in a USB drive into every single one? Or would you rather broadcast that software update Um, out using wireless and have all those systems update at the same time. And again, wireless, it's about convenience. It's about speed. Mm -hmm. Would you rather take the voting uh, tabulated records off of those machines individually or would you rather have them broadcast uh, more quickly? Wireless can be done securely, uh, Mm -hmm. but it, it takes a lot of effort and it takes some thoughtful planning to make sure that the jurisdiction owns their network and is actively managing the security of all the devices on the network. Now, it's possible if a jurisdiction has enough funding, has the, the IT support and the staff there available, 
uh, to make sure that they're connecting all these devices securely and that all of the network traffic is being monitored. Um, but there are other jurisdictions where someone might just go out to um, a local store and, and buy a wireless router and plug it in because they just want to get their work done because they've been working late for the past few weeks and they know that they have to um, get their work done before the polls open or before the polls close, depending on what the task is. And so it's the insecure wireless networks, um, if they're installed and they're not actively monitored, that definitely represent a, a legitimate and concerning uh, vulnerability. Yes. And, you know, once they get into a system, then that, that's a pathway into all the other systems connected to it. Certainly. <laughs> um, I mean, recent research has shown that, um, you know, the bad guys want to get into a network and scout around and see what information is available, what other systems are available um, that can be accessed, how they can elevate their privileges to gain access to even more systems and more information. And unfortunately, in the public sector, um, the research has shown recently that infiltrations into the network can last. The malicious actors can stay on the network for months and months on end without being Mm -hmm. detected. And that's scary. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if they're gathering interesting and valuable data, why not stay in the background and collect it, right? Um, But, you know, talking about connecting, how you have a pathway in and you might get to other types of systems, a lot of times we hear in the news reports that, oh, well, don't worry, our voting systems are not connected to the... the, uh, where the the voter registration databases are in and so on. But do you know of any states, and and you don't have to name them if you don't want to, but are you aware of any states that have their election registration databases connected to their voting systems? You know, I'm not aware of any states that do. um, But when you're talking about voter registration databases, Mm -hmm. almost by their nature, they're going to have some sort of a online public-facing component. I Mm. believe there are now 37 states that offer online voter registration, which is an excellent way to improve uh, voter turnout to make it Mm -hmm. easy for people who want to vote get uh, registered to vote. The challenge is making sure that those public-facing systems are effectively secured and separated from the live database um, that exists either at the county or at the state level. Uh, If you recall, uh, Illinois uh, was the victim of a hack in 2016, and and according to the Mueller indictment, anywhere from 90,000 to 500,000 voter records were accessed because of an exploitation of a vulnerability on that uh, registration website. Wow, and that's pretty valuable data in so many ways, too. I mean, um, people want to get that for their own uh, election activities, but also that's a big privacy <laughs> invasion as well. If that registration shows what party they're in, uh, how often they voted, and and so on, so that's pretty scary. Well, and certainly, uh, if you can get someone's name, their address, um, their birth date, or even their driver's license number or a parcel social security number, that data can be can be bind, combined with other data breaches. So Mm -hmm. if you're thinking about the Equifax data breach 
or if you're talking about the information that was shared as a result of Cambridge Analytica having access to Facebook users. So you can start combining that data and putting together a more complete profile on millions of people. Yeah, yes. So, so many different um, issues to consider when you're just thinking about the voting and uh, election database systems. And, you know, you talked about putting the uh, registration online, which is great. Like you said, I mean, let's get all the people to vote that we can. But I anticipate probably a lot of those online ways of registering, those are done, th- are those done through third parties, through cloud services, through any of the states? You know, of the states that I've investigated, um, most of them appear to be self-hosting um, that mm. type of, of, of a service. Uh, but cloud services are definitely popular with the campaigns, which oh, is another yeah. aspect of our democratic system that is not getting the attention that it deserves. Uh, you're, you're talking about basically a small business that has spun up very quickly uh, with one goal to get someone elected. And then after election day, it's immediately spun down. And sometimes those cloud services aren't configured properly or there's very little control over who has legitimate access. There may be just a single username and password that's shared amongst multiple people. Mm. Or the information may just be left up on the cloud service because the single person who is in charge of running that particular cloud service left to go to another job. And so you have all of these campaigns across the country that have access to millions of voter records for a legitimate purpose that may not be the best stewards of that data uh, when it comes to keeping them secure. Yeah, and they would definitely be targets, <laughs> I would think, also of uh, phishing. Um, I mean, who would be better than to fool someone who you know has access and can get into the, the voting systems or registration systems and call them up and pretend to be someone else and, and get them to give you the information necessary to perhaps remotely access those uh, systems and databases? They are. They're a, a definite target uh, for anyone who's interested in, in gaining access to those voter records. Now, how much fraud, uh, you know, we're talking about security, we're talking about hacking, and also the fact that so many people do have access to the data. Are you aware of much fraud that has occurred um, through the systems, through maybe early and absentee voting? And I mean, verified. Of course, we're hitting so many um, claims about this, but when you actually look at the facts, oftentimes we find that verifiable fraud is is a different, very different from what's being claimed. So, what have you found with regard to to voter and um, registration data fraud? The the claims of voter fraud are greatly exaggerated. It's obviously something that everyone involved in the system wants to prevent, and there are multiple checks. Uh, when it comes to early and absentee voting um, and even in-person voting. So local election officials will receive a mail-in ballot and actually verify the signature against known signatures of that voter. Uh, So, for example, if a voter in Colorado mails in a a ballot and the signature doesn't quite match up with previous year's ballots, there's an opportunity for that voter to be contacted 
and then come back down and verify that they are who they say they are. Uh, Bail-in ballots will also get checked against provisional ballots to make sure that someone doesn't vote twice. There's actually a national database called the Electronic Registration Information Center where the 24 member states can securely verify the accuracy of their voter rolls to make sure that people aren't registered in multiple states. Um, So there are a sufficient number of checks that are in place when it comes to preventing fraud. That's not to say that they're all perfect, but it's Mm -hmm. certainly not um, to the level that some people are making it out to be. I believe that there are greater threats that are far more plausible um, when it Mm -hmm. comes to making sure that one person cast their ballot and that their vote counts accurately. Yeah, you know, as you describe that, it occurs to me that a lot of the the protections being done to prevent fraud, they've been doing that and refining that process probably for for decades and decades, right? Like, because you're talking about comparing your signatures and making sure that those look um, like they're authentic and so on. So, I think it's uh, important to point out too, maybe that while we have all these new threats that we need to address, the states are still doing what they've been doing for decades with regard to those other types of more uh, physical security activities and authentication of, of signatures to prevent fraud then. Certainly. And, and there are new checks that are put in place as the technology advances. For example, electronic poll books. Um, that allows for greater accuracy when it comes to checking in a voter that arrives um, at a particular polling location. Um, The e-poll books uh, can log when a person arrived, when they voted, and then that information can be shared throughout the other precincts so that if that same person attempts to go to a different polling location or someone else tries to go um, and use a a name of, uh, of, of another voter, that information can be checked during the day and there is a log that shows that uh, a certain voter voted at a particular location at a particular time. And so it's a, it's a technological check on a system that's been in place for a, a number of years already. Oh, that's so that is a very positive thing with regard to technology being used to help to prevent these things. You know, talking about fraud, it's interesting. One of the few cases of fraud, uh, validated voter fraud, actually happened here in the Des Moines, Iowa area. And you've probably already heard about it, but there was a woman who had uh, sent in her absentee ballot um, early, and then she said that she got to thinking because she had heard all these claims of being fraud with having um, the absentee ballots not count. She actually made a decision based upon all these false claims about fraud to go in and vote on the day, you know, on actual voting day. And when she went in, that's when they caught her and they said, you've already voted. And she said, yeah, but I, I heard on the news that, you know, or, or in various outlets that, that there was so much fraud, I wanted to make sure my vote counted. So she, she committed fraud because she was afraid of the fraud, I guess, is one way to look at it. Well, that's unfortunate. And I think it speaks to uh, probably the, the largest goal when you're talking to security professionals and election officials in the space 
uh, in that we all want to make sure that the American public is confident that their vote is going to count. Mm-hmm. And that starts with being able to register to vote, being able to cast a vote, and being able to have that vote count. And so all of these checks and balances are in place. All this scrutiny on the system uh, is taking place because without confidence in the system, people are less likely to vote. Yeah, I think that's something that we all need to remember is that sometimes malicious actors may not necessarily interfere with our elections to change a specific outcome. They may do it just to erode that feeling of confidence, mm-hmm. that feeling that a person's vote actually counts. And I think that's even more damaging uh, to our country than changing some votes that might sway a, one or two races. Yes. Well, speaking of that, you know, let's think of the July 13th um, DOJ indictments against the 12 Russians for the DNC hacks during the 2016 elections. You know, what do you see that that will do for the 2018 elections? I mean, do you see the tactics changing during this election period or the attempts increasing or lessening? Well, I think it was very important that the indictment included specific techniques and tactics uh, that the Russian military intelligence officers, the GRU, used to disrupt the election. Because I believe that gave a level of specificity mm-hmm. to what people didn't quite understand I imagine that there were quite a number of people in the general public that just could not understand how someone or some group of people could actually interfere in American elections from halfway around the world. Mm -hmm. But showing step by step how specific campaign staff and volunteer were targeted and how access was then gained to get into those systems and then how those intelligence officers were able to spread throughout those systems uh, of the DCC and the DNC and gain intelligence and then make contact with members of the media and even a congressional candidate and give them that information. Uh, it, it lays out pretty clearly how that interference happened. Now, I don't see those tactics changing. Um, quite frankly, it's a pretty standard playbook uh, to be able to trick a user into providing credentials to access the system to find out interesting information and then to remove that data so that they can be used somewhere else. Um, it's straightforward, but I do see the attacks becoming more sophisticated. Um, you talk about changing from a general phishing email where it's the same email sent out to a large number of people to maybe getting specific and doing a spear phishing attack where the targeted individual gets an email that's tailored to them. So it might have some familiar names, uh, familiar organizations, or just something to kind of trick someone into letting their guard down, even if they've had training against clicking on emails um, or links that they might find a, um, a little unusual. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's kind of scary, too, when you hear in the news about how easy it is uh, to fool some people. I mean, I can't remember the name of the, the guy who has a new show out about, you know, where he's tricking people into doing things that, um, you know, 
they probably shouldn't be doing, but that's kind of an example of uh, social engineering to the extreme. And I guess if uh, if people want to influence a, an election or get access to something, they'll go to the extreme to present themselves as being something, someone other than who they are. Um, and and I'm thinking and. I'm curious on your thoughts, uh, about your thoughts on this. I see the apps. Uh, there's a lot of apps now being used. Uh, for example, back when we had our primaries uh, for 2016, uh, there were a lot of apps being used to collect the votes and so on. And it worries me because I see so many apps don't have any security controls to speak of, or very few, that uh, that that's being introduced into the election process. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? And are you seeing very many apps being used within elections? Well, certainly. There are a number of apps and websites um, that can provide information. And I think that uh, where the general public needs to pay closer attention is the source of that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're seeing an increase in, in the number of niche websites that are purporting to provide news, but then when you look to see how they're funded or who's behind them, it might turn out to be a political action committee or even a campaign itself setting up a specific website to make it look like a legitimate news that's only providing them with positive stories. Mm. And so I think it's up to the voters to be more critical and to look at the source of their news to make sure that they're not falling victim to a misinformation campaign. Oh, gosh, yeah, there's so many. I mean, it's just ridiculous sometimes the things that you see being spread out there. Now, we're getting close to the end of our hour already, but I do want to uh, give you the opportunity about what information about voting and election security specifically, or what about uh, the CDT that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Certainly. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been a a wonderful conversation. And and to close it all up, I'd like to say that elections are occurring more often than people think. There's actually elections going on probably every few weeks, depending on where you look in the country. And so securing our elections is a continuous process and it's a team effort. It's okay that we have federal dollars coming in to kickstart the effort to improve security in the short term, but it's really going to take the state and local officials coming together to plan and fund elections for the long term like they would other critical infrastructure areas, like your roads, like your water pipes. We need to continuously improve the security of our elections, and that requires making sure that there's a continuous stream of funding for those elections. Now, specifically for election officials, they can help themselves out a great deal if they follow basic cybersecurity uh, hygiene using concepts like two-factor authentication and strong passwords to reduce the likelihood that their accounts are going to be compromised. Again, going back to making sure that the candidates understand that they have a role to play when it comes to securing elections and being good stewards of all this very valuable voter record data. And then lastly, it's up to the federal government to make sure that they are providing a strong deterrence so that we're not having local election officials doing battle against well-funded nation-state actors and other criminals who think that they can attack 
our election infrastructure without having any sort of recourse. Thank you so much, Maurice, for being on the show and providing those very important points. I sure appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And if you or your listeners have any other questions, feel free to visit cdt.org. We have several projects going on to help local election officials um, and even voters find out how they can improve their security. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Today we've been speaking with Maurice Turner, Senior Technologist at the Center for Democracy and Technology. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the Privacy Professor. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.